0: Welcome to episode 26 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. My name is Stephanie Von Latke, and my co-host, Steve Seidman, will join me soon for an episode called America vs. America, which features Dr. Lindsay Cohn from the U.S. Naval War College. Her work on civil-military relations is informing current debates on the militarized response to the Black Lives Matter protests. Before we get to this interview, Steve and I talk about current events, adapting military operations during a pandemic, and the new show, Space Force. Listen until the very end to hear Steve's r and segment.
1: Good morning, Stephanie. How are you doing?
0: Good morning, Steve. I'm doing well. Like most people i have been following the protests of Black Lives Matter all over the world. There have also been some protests in Kingston and, and Montreal. So just talking about this with, with friends and family over the past couple of weeks. How are you, Steve?
1: Oh, I'm doing pretty well. I mean, this crisis or this thing that's going on has sort of hit multiple buttons for me. I used to study the international relations of ethnic conflict, and I would always argue that ethnic conflict is not contagious, but we do see these protests spreading around the world. And so my old claim I would renew, which is you may see more protests around the world, but I think you'll probably see reform efforts vary depending on the politics of each place. So the fact that Minneapolis seems to be disbanding their police department is exceptional, but I don't think you'll see that spread everywhere. I think it'll depend on the local conditions of each city, of each state, of each province, of each country. But it's also hitting my buttons as a Civ Mill person. So we'll get into it in a little bit about the civil, civil military relations of the things we witnessed the past week or two. But it's also as a parent, my daughter's in Los Angeles and she's going off to these protests. So I'm obviously proud of her for her outrage and at where it's taking her. Uh, She was involved in Black Lives Matter protests back when she was in college. So she has much practice at this and she has uh, much sympathy for her friends of color. But also as a parent, I'm worried because with the police brutality at uh, so many of these protests, I worried for my daughter's safety, but she's been fine. But these events, you know, sort of hit lots of different buttons for a lot of different people and it's been a real challenge and it's funny because, or not funny, but strange because we're in the middle of a pandemic and how the pandemic intersects with us has been odd to say the least. So do you have any, uh, before we get into the civil military relations of it, do you have any thoughts on the the Black Lives Matter movement and what's going on in terms of police brutality either in the United States or Canada or elsewhere?
0: Yeah, I've been paying Mm. attention to Uh, part of the conversation that has dealt with the implications of the Black Lives Matter movement for diversifying the national security community. A lot of attention has been on gender diversity in in the past few years, but the events of the past weeks emphasize the need to expand these efforts to people of color. And while I agree, I'm also very cautious of introducing these types of instrumental reasons in favor of diversity as opposed to just the rights-based arguments. Mm -hmm. Uh, The U.S. needs to have its own house in order before it can act credibly internationally is the type of arguments that we're hearing. And uh, I think innocent black people are getting murdered and that should be enough. So while I do understand why these two conversations are getting tied together and I do Mm -hmm. think it's important to diversify uh, the national security community, I think we have to be very cautious in how we introduce those types of arguments and how we we push this forward.
1: And that reminds me that when we started putting together the Canadian defense and security network, one of our six primary objective that's in our original grant documents, and as we followed through ever since, is to foster a more diverse and inclusive defense and security community in Canada. And I have to say, following on your comments, it's been easier to do that with women than with people of color, in part because there are more women in the defense and security space, more female professors doing this stuff than than people of color doing this stuff in Canada, uh, in terms of professors, uh, which speaks to how white the professorate is in Canada. But it's also that there's no organization that's equivalent of Wise Canada. So when we want to do a better job of including women, I always reach out to one of our, the CDSN's partners, which you helped found, which is Women in International Security Canada. And that was built off of, or franchise of, or you can use whatever whatever you think is the best description, but it was built from the starting point of the original Weiss organization. And so I want to put a call out to the folks in Canada that we, a bunch of white people running the CDSN, can't create uh, organizations for people of color to represent uh, their interest in the defense and security community. But we know people who've done this in Washington. We know people who are leading the women of color Advancing Peace and Security, including Bonnie Jenkins, who we had at our Year Ahead event this past winter. And so if you're interested in organizing organizing an organization, a group to promote women of color or people of color in the national security space in Canada, in the defense and security space in Canada, we can help you out. We We can try to facilitate your efforts, but we can't really lead. We must follow and support. So I just wanted to put that out there. We are not experts on the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States or Canada, but we are people who study the military. And so do you have any thoughts about what happened last week with General Milley being present at the march on the church next to the White House and the sieve mill crisis that's been brewing in, in the United States?
0: Yes. And, and to get smart on on the civil military implications of all of this, I've been, of course, following the, the tweets of Lindsey Cohn and some of the other stuff that she's published. And you've interviewed her for the show. So I hope that you'll be sharing some hot takes uh, right at the front end. But, you know, one thing that has been very apparent is the weakening of what she calls civil military norms against military leaders making political statements. And so I think it's, it's, not new. I mean, there have been other instances of you know, people from the military community, whether they're active or retired, making public statements. But we're really seeing an uptick in these types of, of statements. It's very forceful, especially against Trump's threats to deploy federal troops if uh, governors are unable to or, or unwilling to call on the national guard to respond to the protests it's been you know very troubling to witness, and I think what's at stake of course is is that trust between Americans and the military. And it could quickly unravel in a situation like this, depending on how the military acts and some Mm -hmm. of the statements that are put out for context. And so I'm thinking especially of Trump's use of the military for his photo op in in Lafayette Park. You know, those Mm -hmm. moments, you know, in this case, uh, you know, sounds inappropriate, but a a picture does uh, speak a thousand words. In those moments, you you can tell that it could go both ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, This could be a moment for the military to step up and say, no, they're." limits to what you can call upon the military to do there's a limit to the politicization of the military or it could go the other way in terms of unraveling that that trust between the american people and and the military as an institution so it's not so surprising that uh retired generals like uh, martin dempsey or jim mattis have uh, really come out of the shadows Mm -hmm. and spoken forcefully about what they uh, see the president doing, which is putting the military in an unfair and politicized uh, situation.
1: Yeah, it was really striking, particularly with Martin Dempsey and particularly Admiral Mullen, uh, because what we've seen actually is almost every single chair, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff come out and speak out about this. From Richard Myers, who served under George Bush, To Dempsey and Mullen, who served uh, under Obama, to Mattis, who wasn't the chairman but who was SECDEF. And what was really really striking about Mullen and Dempsey in particular is that they've been very loud about telling military people, retired military people, not to be political actors. That they've they've written things uh, in the past when you had generals or retired generals on the convention stages in 2016, both for the Democrats, that would be John Allen, and for the Republicans, that would be famously Michael Flynn. And so they've been very reticent to to speak out on things. And so when they come out now, that actually has more heft. Just like Secretary of Defense Mattis, I tend not to call him General Mattis anymore because I think he wears the uniform of a... A sec def now that he took that that role. That he came out after being so silent after leaving the Trump administration, he said nothing. So he he basically saved his shot for, for this moment in time, which suggests that this moment in time was so very, very important. The notion of having regular US forces uh, sent out into the American cities. Now, what Lindsay will talk about and has written extensively about this is this is not unprecedented. This has happened before. And what is most striking is that The most recent times that American troops have been called out, aside from in reaction to the Rodney King, the riots after the Rodney King verdict, is that they were called out by Eisenhower and Kennedy to enforce Supreme Court decisions for desegregation in the 1950s and 60s. And those were times where the National Guards, because they were state-run organizations, were not doing their job because their governors were supporting segregation and were defying the Supreme Court. And so the U.S. troops being sent in to support people's rights. And in this case, Trump is threatening to send U.S. troops to, in, to deny them their rights, deny their right to protest, deny their right to free speech. So that's what makes it uh, particularly troublesome. That's what makes it distinct from previous efforts to send in the troops, at least in the past 50 years or so. So that's, I think that's why the generals, retired generals came out about this. I think it was also seeing the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, you know, being told, being said by Trump that he's in command, which is a strange thing to say, because one of the distinctions between the United States and Canada is that in Canada, the Chief of Defense Staff commands the troops from top to bottom. In the United States, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff commands the Joint Staff, which are the, hundred, or the approximately 1,000 the staffers in the Pentagon who provide advice, but he doesn't command military units. So that is confusing the chain of command. And then to have him uh, appear on the scene as if he's actually commanding was, well, I think, sent chills down the spines of lots of retired military officers. So I think that moment in time was, was really important. And that's where you see the Secretary of Defense going back and forth, back and forth about whether to send the troops back home or not. And so uh, the other thing that mattered in all this is that it came out afterwards, maybe because Mark Milley's friends were putting it out there, that he confronted Trump. Trump wanted 10,000 troops sent in to break up the protests. And he said, no, I'm not going to send the regulars. And we've got other folks who can do that, the National Guard and, and other forces. And so they got into a shouting match. And he s- so far survived the experience, but it raises questions about you know the future of of his his position as a chairman if he gets keeps on getting credit for stopping Trump. I don't think Trump's going to be thinking too kindly about that.
0: So uh, I mean, this brings up another point in my mind, not so much about civil relations, but about the militarization of of the response and the difference that people might perceive between states deploying the National Guard or being exposed to federal troops. Do you think that Dempsey, for instance, is right in saying that because National Guard are known in the state that they will have a calming influence versus federal, uh, the federal military, which is you know, from elsewhere and may not have that calming influence on protests?
1: I don't know. I think this goes to some, one of the basic things, which is how sensitive or where people are on the ground. If you go back to Afghanistan, the, tr- the people on the ground weren't able really to distinguish the Americans from the Canadians, from the Germans, from the French, from whoever. And if you take a look at some of the pictures of the past couple of weeks where you have people looking like the military surrounding the White House, you have people on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial... It's not easy for people who are not experts, and sometimes it's not even easy for experts to distinguish exactly who these people are. So we can have this larger debate about whether it's smart or not to, or appropriate or not to use regular forces instead of National Guard. But in terms of calming influence or not, I'm not exactly sure that the National Guard folks will be more or less than the regulars because it's hard to tell. What I will say is that one of the things that the Forever Wars of the past 20 years has done has been that it's kept... The regular force is very, very busy, so they're not doing crowd control. And their idea of crowd control is checkpoints in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, where they're very prone to shoot first if they're threatened. Versus the National Guard, which used to have as its entire job domestic stuff, you know, and with with the possibility of being deployed abroad. Well, in from 2003 onwards, you saw the National Guard being repeatedly and the reserves being repeatedly deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan, which meant. That they haven't really had time to do training. And when they were doing training, the training was about doing things like Iraq and Afghanistan, not about tr- training to do crowd control. So I think crowd control skills of the Guard and of the regular forces are probably not at their their best. So that this raises all kinds of questions about whether any of this stuff is a good idea. But I will say I prefer the National Guard right now doing the stuff to the state or lo- uh, local police because those folks seem to be the most out of control. Could you imagine the possibility of a, of a military unit releasing personal information about the daughter of a, of a civilian leader and getting away with it? That's what happened in New York where the New York police released personal information of the daughter of the mayor. And the mayor was like, okay. Because he is so intimidated by the lo- local cops, the police union is so strong. You can't. I can't imagine that that happening in the in the American military, the Canadian military, because you don't have such a lack of accountability. You, you actually do have control, civilian control, of the military in the United States and Canada. I'm not sure we have civilian control of the police in the United States right now, as the reactions to the riots pretty much demonstrated the the police riots, I should say. So to answer your question, I'm not sure whether the National Guard would be better or worse than the regulars. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: well, militarized is militarized, I, I think, whether it's the National Guards or, or the federal troops. I think, I think the process, you know, I, I feel better with the process of calling on the National Guard, but yes. in terms of how those deployed troops are perceived by protesters on the ground, I'm not sure if it makes that much of a difference. It just looks like a militarized response. And of course, we could get into a whole conversation about the militarization of the police and its tactics, but maybe we'll save that for another episode.
1: Yeah, I, I do think we'll see some changes about the amount of mil- military equipment going to local police in the future.
0: Let me ask you though, just bringing this back home and mm-hmm. uh, closing the loop on this with regards to the to the CDSN. What I've been looking at recently are also statements that are put out by different organizations on Black Lives Matter and of course, corporate statements in particular have received a lot of criticism. And I think this is often where civil society comes in and save the day. I don't know if you've seen this, but uh, you talked about Weiss Canada earlier. And I think that Wise Canada is one of those organizations that has really hit the right tone when it comes to issuing a statement on Black Lives Matter. And I'm just wondering for the CDSN, you know, what is going to be the strategy with regards to putting in a statement and, you know, our commitments to, to the movement and for doing research mm-hmm. where we have an inclusive conceptualization of, of security?
1: Well, I think the first thing we are do is, is that I saw Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security have put out a statement that 150 plus organizations have signed on to suggesting ways to combat racism and discrimination. And so I've got to take a look at it and read it to see what it says. And I'm going to confer with my the leadership team of which you are a member. And and I think that we'll probably end up signing on to it or supporting that statement and trying to figure out ways to implement it. One of the things that we have done fairly consistently since our founding a little more than a year ago is we've tried to include people from all backgrounds in our efforts. So we'll, we'll continue to do that. We'll try to reach out. So for instance, we've reached out to a, a women of color at Advanced Peace and Security for our event that we had in December, but I've also reached out to them to make to see if they can become a partner of our of the CDSN because we we need to listen and we need to learn. From those who face these problems. They have better ideas about how to help, how to improve things than, than we can come up with. So I think that's that's probably our first step. I've been reluctant to put out a statement that we've crafted because I just, I know that a lot of this stuff rings hollow. So I think building on, on the work of, of those who are closer to the problem is probably the way to go ahead.
0: Yeah, uh, as long as it's unequivocal and constructive, you'll have my vote.
1: Okay, well, I appreciate that. And since you, you know, since you founded an organization that does fight other kinds of discrimination, I I definitely lean lean on your expertise in this. Speaking of leaning on your expertise, one of the things that we did the past week is that the two of us wrote a piece for Policy Options, I believe, is the outlet.
0: That's right. I asked if you could co-author a piece with me where we consider the operational tempo of the CAF and NATO uh, under this COVID environment. So the peace is not out yet i think we'll get some editorial guidance in the next few days we submitted it on friday but it's true that both the canadian armed forces and nato have had to adjust their operational tempo and that the covid-19 response has disrupted operations of course both domestically domestically and abroad so that's what the piece covers we look both at the the domestic response and then scan the horizon how different nato operations have adapted and what we find of course is that certain missions have been put on a bit of an operational pause and certainly Mm -hmm. that has been the case with the nato mission in iraq it's very difficult to do training activities in in this environment with uh, the iraqi military you know what we also note is that it's not just covid19 that has prompted this operational pause as far as uh uh, NMI is concerned. There had already been a depreciating security environment since the assassination of Soleimani back in January. You know, that seems like ages ago now. It's, it's crazy. It's just been six months. But we had already commented back then on the fact that it was very difficult for the NATO mission in Iraq to proceed with its uh, training and an advisory role in that kind of security context. So when you add COVID-19 to the mix, then that truly overwhelms the, the capacity of mission to do what it was tasked to do but it can uh, respond to uh, certain requests for assistance and certainly nato has received many uh, requests for uh, assistance from different allies but also international partners like iraq like afghanistan and so uh, there's a triage of all of this uh, mm-hmm. these requests through their euro atlantic disaster response coordination center and of course, something that you've emphasized uh, in in the past, and we've included in this article, is that you know the virus is the new force protection concern of the military right now. Whether forces are on ships or in barracks, close proximity increases the risk of contagion. Also, some certain tasks that the militaries have been asked to perform expose them to to more risk, and certainly that's been the case in Canada with the work of the Canadian Armed Forces in long-term care facilities. And when we think of operations abroad, well. In Afghanistan, uh, this is a country where the virus is quickly spreading, and if many of the Afghan security forces have the, the virus, then it, it becomes very difficult to pursue training activities as planned. So that has also impacted uh, the operational rhythm, let's say, in, in some of those key missions.
1: Yeah, and what's striking is we need to think about how different kinds of activities pose different kinds of risks. And so the whole thing about a pandemic is you want to minimize your exposures to other people. And training is all about maximizing your exposure to other people. So it made sense that the CAF cut back on training, not only in Iraq, but Ukraine as well, because any training effort, you're constantly meeting new people, constantly meeting new people. And that's and gathering in, in close proximity. And so stopping that made sense. Whereas in Latvia, you're basically taking the existing force that's on the same base. And when you're doing an exercise or a training effort, They're training themselves, not training other people. And their exercises are going out to some spot and engaging in essentially a a practice of war. And again, that doesn't involve strangers. So it doesn't really expose you to new people as much as just keeping your level of activities up. So it makes a lot of sense that they are still exercising in Latvia while not training in Ukraine and not training in Iraq or other places. So I do think that the CAF has done a pretty good job of distinguishing between both activities that are of higher importance And of those that are present the troops with more or less risk to being exposed to the disease.
0: And one thing I read uh, more recently is because I'm just considering the range of tasks that the the military is called upon to to perform in in this pandemic response. One thing I had not seen before, but I saw the Italian army uh, being asked to do is to deploy a CBRN team. Uh, in this case, the vote to decontaminate public buildings. So we'll add that to the list of of tasks that, that we've been compiling about things that the military is being asked to do in this context.
1: I'm sure that when they were putting those units together, they were not thinking pandemics, but that would seem to be a capability that would be useful for this kind of event, this kind of crisis. Speaking about crisis, have you been watching Space force uh, where every week it seems as if Stephen Carell is creating his own crisis?
0: yeah um I'm almost done with the first season, but not quite um, oh you're ahead of me am i
1: <laughs> i'm sick i'm in I'm into the sixth episode
0: okay I, I, maybe i'm at the seventh or or something i'm not sure how many uh, episodes there are in total, but after watching the trailer, my expectations were sky high. And- <laughs> I have to admit, I am a little bit disappointed, but I think the potential is there. I'm not giving up on it just yet. I'm willing to give the show a second chance with its second season and there will be a second season. Maybe just in case there was any doubt in people's minds, uh, the the U.S. Space Force does exist. (laughs) It was established last year within the Department of the Air Force. And so it's funny that there's a show that picks up on that right away. But back to the show, Carell said he didn't want to poke fun at the military with the show. And to me, this is the missed opportunity this is the, the weakness of the show Carell's own father was was in the military I'm sure he's mimicking some of his mannerisms, like the deep raspy voice or the physical discomfort experience when he's late for a meeting we see him running at one point because he's late for a meeting but I think that you know I would prefer sharper military satire than the one than than what we have right now on display in um mm-hmm in the show i'm thinking like the movie war machine Mm -hmm. to me the the movie war machine really got that military satire just right and this sitcom space force just doesn't get it and and i think that the the family drama around the the show also adds to some of the confusion about the storyline and what Mm -hmm. the show is truly about i will say that i do like the the dynamic between the characters of steve Carell and john malkovich i think Mm -hmm. that is one of the the strong points of the show, but I want more military satire and less family drama. So that's my take. What's yours?
1: Well, it's funny uh, you mentioned a couple things. That uh, first of all, the U- U.S. Space Force uh, has a problem now because it might be that the copyright for the phrase Space Force may belong to the TV show. Uh, <laughs> so that's that I'm serious. That's something that's come up in the past week or so. So I don't know how that's going to play out. The second thing is it's it's showing that we are of two different generations, Stephanie. Because when I think of uh, military satire, I think of Mash, the TV show Mash, which ran in the 1970s and into the 1980s, and the movie uh, that spawned it were very very satirical, very much pointed that had a little more weight to it, that some, the later ep- uh, episodes, uh, later seasons tend to have a little more emotional depth to them and seriousness, in part because it was taking place during and in the aftermath of Vietnam. So the Korean War in MASH became sort of a parable, or a, I don't know what the right phrase is, but it became a stand-in for the Vietnam War. So if you want to have punchy, good military satire, picking up from MASH might be a good way to go. And I will say that this TV show, like its predecessor, The Office, started out the first season kind of roughly and, and found its mojo in the second season. The challenge is, is that the Steve Carell character is is an awful person most of the time, and then the last five minutes he turns out to be a, have a heart of gold, and, and that... You know, you get a little bit of whiplash with that. I kind of don't mind having a four-star general being an ass and being incompetent. We've seen, and I don't think it's entirely unrealistic. I, I tend to think about Tommy Franks and Michael Flynn and, and those lights that the American military has promoted people to the highest ranks uh, who've proved to be incompetent. So that part, you know, the critics were were critical of that, but I found that to be the most realistic part of the show. And we can't forget that it was a Canadian general who got fired in Afghanistan And it wasn't just for sleeping with multiple subordinates. He also had a negligent uh, firing of his weapon in a helicopter at the time that his boss, the chief of defense staff, was there. So it's possible to imagine people with stars on their or leafs on their shoulders being not so competent at their job. So I didn't have a problem with that. I found that to be actually spot on. Mm
0: -hmm, I agree. And and that's perhaps... uh most on display when the various generals and, and admirals are interacting with one another in meetings. Maybe that's my favorite part.
1: Yes. One of the things that's different between the United States and Canada is the inter-service rivalry is much more naked and brutal in mm-hmm. the United States. And, and to have the Air Force general played by Noah Baumbach being so upset that his service lost control of space to this new service, That's actually very realistic. I think the Air Force is very upset that Space Force is not really directly under them. No bureaucracy wants to lose control of an important domain that is gonna be the future of combat or future of the organization. So I found that part of it to be very realistic. And I did just finish watching the episode where there's a a question about whether to buy from Lockheed or Raytheon. I'm like, they're actually using the real names of these defense contractors that are rivals to each other.
0: For the exoskeleton.
1: For the exoskeletons, and I—that was terrific because uh, I have friends of mine who work for Lockheed and, Reithia, and so I haven't yet <laughs> talked to them about how they think about that because neither one looks all that good in the end, and it might not have been a very realistic depiction of. of procurement but the american military procurement is messed up in so many different ways that that was that was wonderful so uh i do think that the show has some good pieces to it i think it just needs to come together but uh, i know that when you saw the the ads for it that you got excited to see it i think a lot of my a lot of our friends in the and security community were pretty jazzed to see it because they were hoping for something like mash or hoping something like war machine and it's not quite there yet it's not quite that acerbic or punchy uh, or insightful, but it's it's got pieces in there that that, that are pretty good.
0: Yeah. So I'm a fan. I, I'm, I'm, I should say I'm not a fan yet, but I'm supportive of this endeavor. <laughs> and I want it to, to see it go on. But uh, before we give too much of the show away, have we now stolen your thunder for the RNR? and Or were you going to focus on other things for your last segment?
1: No, the r r segment will focus on reading materials and, and TV stuff that speak to the, the issues of today in the United States about race and racial politics. This podcast has had a, a tonal problem, as we talked about at the outset, going from very, very difficult search situations to talk about to trying to figure out how to talk about Space Force in the aftermath of that. And then uh, in the R&R segment, we'll return to talk, thinking about a little bit of what are some of the things that we could watch and read to develop a better understanding of what's going on in the United States today.
0: Sounds good. And next up is your interview with uh, Dr. Lindsey Cohn.
1: Yes, I met Lindsey Cohn uh, a few years ago. She is one of the experts on civil-military relations. It turns out the Naval War College is a hive of experts on, on civil-military relations. And one of her focal points is on the use of force by the United States military in the United States. And so whenever anybody uses the phrase posse comitatus and says the United States military can't act in the United States, I know that she uh, starts to get a little miffed. And so I, I was sending everybody on Twitter towards her and she ended up writing the monkey cage piece last week that we'll link in the show notes that highlights sort of some of the history that she's talking about, that this is not that unprecedented. Though, of course, not being unprecedented doesn't mean that it's a good idea or that it's not problematic. And so we talk a bit about what's misunderstood about this, what are the implications of deploying the Guard versus federal troops. We talk a little bit about the chairman's behavior and how to make sense of that. And it's a good conversation. She's really smart in this stuff. And of the things we've talked about in our, our podcast the past year or so, civil military relations issues are the ones that come closest to what I'm currently researching. So I'm definitely very uh, into what she had to say.
0: So stay tuned for this interview. And Steve, as always, a pleasure talking to you.
1: A pleasure talking to you, Stephanie. And we have to spend the next couple weeks thinking about how we're going to celebrate the anniversary of Battle Rhythm, which is coming up.
0: I just need to survive today, which is my son's (laughs) birthday. And I'll get right to that.
1: (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. have a good week. Uh, Keep washing your hands. Be safe. And wish your son a happy birthday from the entire Battle Rhythm community.
0: Thank you very much, Steve.
1: Welcome to Battle Rhythm, Lindsey Cohn. Uh, For our audience, Lindsey Cohn is an expert on civil-military relations, and particularly these days, she has been one of the key voices on trying to understand what the US troops can and cannot do in the United States. She's been myth-busting left and right, and so she's speaking to us now to help folks beyond the United States understand what's going on within the United States. So Lindsey, welcome to Battle Rhythm.
2: Hi, Steve, so glad to be here.
1: Shall you give your a disclaimer since you work for the US Naval War College?
2: Yes, thank you. So I, I need to make sure that everyone realizes I'm speaking in my personal capacity and the views that I give here do not represent the views of my employer, the US Naval War College or any organ of the United
1: States government. Does that include the Boy Scouts? Yes. Okay. All right. uh, So the first question, obviously, is, is what do people get wrong about the use of U.S. troops on American soil? Whenever anybody says, uses the phrase posse comitatus and says, this can't happen here. My first thought is to say, Lindsay would disagree. So why don't you go ahead and disagree?
2: Sure. So I think the biggest misconception is precisely what you just said. The biggest misconception is that it is somehow illegal for military personnel to be used on U.S. soil for any purpose other than, say, disaster relief. And that's just not the case. That being said, it is absolutely the case that the use of military personnel has always been looked at as a last resort, um, as something that should really be considered only if the other authorities meant to deal with these kinds of things simply cannot handle it.
1: They can be used, I guess one of the things that confuses people outside of the United States is the difference between the National Guard and the Federal Troops. Again, as I understand it, National Guard controlled by the governors, except for when they are federalized, and the regular troops are always controlled by the President of the United States. But are there other other things that are different between the two that we should be aware of? Yeah,
2: so you're right, of course. Um, The National Guard are the modern-day incarnation of the original state militia, Forces, right? Which, um, and, and in that sense, they are still similar in that they are normal citizens with normal jobs. They are civilians who have volunteered to be available for call up should the governor need them or in, ca- in special cases, should the president need them. So they are part time military personnel, they receive occasional training. Um, They can be deployed outside the United States for all kinds of missions. They were used in the 1990s for peacekeeping missions, and they have, in fact, been deployed frequently uh, in the last 20 years in the United States' wars in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. And so over the last 20 years, they've become more and more like regular forces and less and less like the sort of part-time citizen soldiers that they have traditionally been. But they are still part-time. They are still civilians first and military personnel only when they are needed. And that's the biggest difference between them and the active forces. The active forces that being in the military is their full-time job. And as you said, they are always under federal control, whereas the National Guard are controlled by their state governors until unless the president uh, sees the need to federalize them. The one exception to that um, that's been in the news recently is, of course, Washington, D.C., which does not have a governor, and where the D.C. National Guard are under the direct chain of command to the president.
1: Which, as a side note, might lead to more energy to make Washington, D.C. a state, so that way it can have a governor and have some control over its own territory. But I, I guess one of the questions that comes up from this, though, is not just who has the authorities, but who's good at what. So does the National Guard tend to have better training, more training for uh, crowd control? I under, You know, Obviously, the federal troops, the, the regular troops, MP battalions do crowd control all the time. But have the regular troops been doing a lot of training for crowd control so that way they would be good at this? Because one of the questions that's arisen over the past week or so is that it looks like the, the police across the country are really bad at crowd control these days, or at least they're overly aggressive in doing crowd control. You know, People are saying maybe, maybe the Guard would do it better, maybe the regular forces would do it better. What's your sense of that? Well,
2: it's actually a pretty complicated issue. Uh, So a couple of things. Number one, the National Guard, yes, in theory, they have more training uh, and more doctrine connected to the idea of responding to civil disturbance or, or domestic unrest than the regular forces do. However, um, their resources are limited, their time is limited, and of course they can only do so much training, and so priorities matter. And what they have been doing for the last 15-20 years is is not crowd control. So I would just point that out. Mm -hmm. That being said, and the regular forces get almost no training or experience in these kinds of things. That being said, They're also usually not used directly in crowd control unless there's no other choice, right? So one of the things that you see when either the guard or the regular forces, and of course much less frequently the regular forces, uh, are used in these situations, they are almost always deployed in a support role. The closest you will usually see them coming to crowd control is a simple presence mission, like you saw uh, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, where they were just standing there, right? Uh-huh. So, usually, they will be used for logistical logistical support, sometimes to provide security, um, sometimes uh, simple presence, like you know, patrolling to to enforce a curfew or something like that. Very very rarely will you. The active forces used in actual crowd control. Guard forces you'll see used a little bit more in crowd control, like as you saw a lot of that in the 1950s and 60s um, and into the 70s. But the tradition is to use those forces, the law enforcement agencies and things like that, who are supposed to be trained in this before using the garden reserve. And as you noted, however, the police in many cities in particular, uh, seem to be very aggressive. One big difference there is that both the National Guard and the regular forces, their doctrine on these kinds of missions um, is is very clear that minimum force necessary is to be used and that force should be a last resort, which does not seem to be the attitude that, that many police departments are taking. So yeah, in some ways, the National Guard and the regular forces would actually be more restrained than the police.
1: Yeah, I did see one protest sign, some veteran had a sign saying I had, my rules of engagement much more, were much more extensive than the those of the police. Uh, yes. What, I guess the question then is, is as you've been watching this unfold the past couple of weeks, what has disturbed you the most?
2: Oh, uh, yikes, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, how long do you have? Uh, obviously what's disturbed me the most ha- has not had anything to do with the national guard or, or the regular military which of course the regular military haven't actually been deployed as such yet but obviously it's it's the police violence it's the it's the scenes that we see of Minneapolis police driving by people who are simply standing on the side of the road and and spraying pepper spray at them out the side yeah. of the car you know knocking down old men using canes to walk, those kinds of things are obviously most disturbing to me. In terms of, you know, things that have to do with with the topic of the National Guard um, and the military, I think the most disturbing thing to me has been the president's rhetoric and the president's apparent willingness to possibly deploy the active forces, not just against the wishes of the governors involved, but clearly intended to be a a crackdown. Now, he has has legal authority to deploy regular forces to states without the governor's permission. He does have that authority, but in theory, it's supposed to happen only under the most extreme of circumstances where there is some kind of insurrection or rebellion underway. Mm. And I don't think that any objective observer would call this an insurrection.
1: What is an insurrection?
2: Well, Steve, an insurrection.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry. It's just that it's just, we, hear the, we, hear this, it, we hear this thing, the Insurrection Act, which, you yes. know, if you, if, aside from you and people who, who, who study this kind of stuff, five years ago, I don't think anybody would have known what the Insurrection Act was, and we still don't really know what it means. And right, so, yeah, and
2: it keeps on getting misrepresented. <laughs> yeah, so an insurrection is an armed rebellion against the authority of the state uh, and in an attempt to overthrow the state.
1: So that would be the white Um, supremacists then, right? uh,
2: Speaking in my personal capacity, many of them are. Uh, I mean, the sovereign citizens movement is explicitly about essentially rebellion against state authority, which is is why it's so sort of distressing to see how different the responses are Mm -hmm. to a, a group of people saying, hey, we think that everyone should have full rights and be treated equally before the law and not be subject to police brutality and violence versus people who take over a national wildlife refuge and insist that they don't have to obey any laws. It seems to me that those are two very different things, and, and yet they're being treated in sort of ways that are opposite to what you would expect a rule of a country to do. The Insurrection Act, you've seen in the news a lot of people saying things like, oh, the president might be invoking the 1807 Insurrection Act. And what's funny to me is that a lot of people seem to be saying, oh, this thing is so old, is it even relevant anymore? And I'm like, my my attitude is actually different in the sense that This law was enacted when most of the people who wrote or debated the Constitution were not just still alive, but still in office in many Mm. cases. So, you know, this was not some sort of sneaky backdoor way to do something that none of the founders would have wanted. This was this was done by pretty much the same people. Also, the Insurrection Act of 1807 is not mainly the thing that most people are worried about the president invoking, what they are talking about is an 1861 act, obviously done right at the outbreak of the Civil War, which is the one that allows the president to send in troops without the governor's consent to suppress rebellion. And uh, and then there's an 1871 act, the Ku Klux Klan Act, uh, which is the one that allows the president to send in federal troops even against the consent of the governors to enforce federal civil rights. So there, it's a series of acts. So I think it's, it's safer to refer to them now by where they are in the U.S. code. So as, as many Canadians may know, the U.S. obviously modeled on the British common law system, but over time we have codified many of our laws into a U.S. code. That's where permanent law resides. Um, and all of these acts that give the president authority to call out the militia and the regular forces to enforce the law or deal with rebellion or insurrection or uh, protect federal rights, federal property, things like that. Those are all now in uh, Title 10 of the US Code, Chapter 13. So anyone, any enterprising soul who wants to look it up, that's where you look. Google US Code, Title 10, Chapter 13. Helpfully titled, Insurrection. Yeah, so anyway, these acts are a series of acts they've been expanding presidential power over time, usually in response to significant problems that Congress felt required effective and quick action, that it wasn't clear the president had the authority to take, so they gave him the authority.
1: Now, does Congress have any role, if any of these things are going to vote, can they block it, or is there support required to continue it? Not really. um,
2: because Well, because Congress has delegated its powers to the president. Right. So the the U.S. Constitution gives Congress the power to call up the militia to execute the laws, et cetera. It gives Congress the power to raise and make laws for an army um, and maintain a navy and all of that stuff. But Congress in the 1790s. So again, even when when George Washington was still president, started delegating those constitutional powers to the president in the so-called Militia Acts. That's where Congress delegated the power to the president to call up the militia so that he did not need an act of Congress. Uh And then the Insurrection Act codified the president's ability also to call up the regular troops to do this, to, to put down an insurrection, not just the militia. Why? Because the militia was fairly inefficient and ineffective. So, again, Congress has delegated a lot of authority to the president. And then there's, a, there's an 1827 Supreme Court case that basically establishes that the president has sole discretion to decide when a situation is such that it requires federal intervention. So Congress does not need to make a decision or, or a finding on that.
1: But when Congress delegates, I guess the question is, what would it take for Congress to undelegate? I, would have, I guess it's, these are acts, they require majority of both houses and approval of the president. So I guess undelegating would require the same things?
2: Yeah. So because, they, because these delegations of power have been made into statute, if you wanted to undelegate that, you'd have to make statutes repealing those statutes.
1: And that's yes. not going to happen with a president who'd veto well, that. And then you could override his right. veto, but that's not going to happen under the current situation.
2: That's correct.
1: Wow. Too bad nobody thought about that at the time. <laughs> yes, they did. I'm sure they did. And they weighed yes, the way they, <laughs> they weighed the various possibilities. It's 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 like the discovery, I remember um either right before the election or right after the election, Tom Nichols, one of your colleagues at the Naval War College, had this epic friends memed uh thread on Twitter explaining how really no, there's no one else who controls nuclear weapons in the United States besides the president of the United States. Now people are going, Well, is that really a good idea? And the problem is is if you' put other people's hands on the wheel, then you can't respond as quickly. And I guess that same logic played out for these things that we've been talking about. Uh, and nobody imagined all the way along that we would have a president like Donald Trump who's with his hands at the wheel.
2: I think you're making a really important point. And it's important to note that my, my current project is, is a history of the domestic use of federal military force for law enforcement and peacekeeping operations in the United States. And I'm collecting a database of as many of these incidents as I can find and one thing that has really struck me is how much self-restraint presidents have exercised in this history. Now, there have been a few exceptions. President Cleveland in, in 1894 and in the Pullman strike sent federal troops into Chicago, not just without the consent of the governor, but without even asking him. It was to protect federal property, and it was not clear that federal troops were needed. Uh-huh. But with very few exceptions like that, most presidents have really taken seriously the spirit of the law, which is that the use of federal force should be a last resort and that states should exhaust their abilities first and that when federal force needs to be used, it should be used with restraint. It is striking how strong that normative structure has been. Again, a few exceptions. Mm-hmm. You've got some, pre- some presidents who uh, the governor would tell them, you know, I have an insurrection, I need federal help, and the president wouldn't bother checking. He would just take the word of the governor. And sometimes the governor was just saying that because he wanted somebody else to pay for the response, um, i.e. the federal government. But in most cases, presidents have been very careful and and very diligent about trying to obey the spirit of the law. I think the really big difference here is that we currently have a president who uh, is not interested in that spirit and who is perfectly willing to use whatever latitude he can, including simply producing fait accompli. So I think the real difference now is that we have a president who does not feel constrained by that normative structure and who is willing to use force just because he thinks it's a good idea.
1: Well, that leads to the the next question I have, which is, we still don't really know what happened last week, but at least those people in the Pentagon, perhaps trying to salvage the chairman's uh, reputation. The story is that General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, confronted the president when the president was trying to order regular troops in to put down the the protests, and that the chairman pushed back mightily. You know, So that's part A of Milley's behavior. Part B of Milley's behavior was he was out on the street in his battle uniform, appearing to be in command of the situation. So that's part B. And part C is that since then, Milley has decided, or at least has been ordered by his secretary of defense not to appear before Congress. So I'm curious as to your general take on what the chairman is doing and any guesses on what's going to happen next.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think Milley is in a, a difficult position. I think it's interesting, though not unexpected, that he pushed back hard against the use of active duty forces for these kinds of missions. Um, I I, I try to make it clear to people that the Department of Defense really does not want to do these missions. They are not trained for them. They have very little experience with them. They present a a really confusing and difficult legal context for individual uh, military service members who, who would need to know what constituted an unlawful order. It's just, it's difficult all around. It's Bad optics for a military that that likes to present itself as being above politics, um, and and that we want to be above politics. You know, protests, even riots, which I don't think most of these things have been, are inherently political, and so the the military really does not like being put in the middle of these, and they they take very seriously the idea that they should be a last resort. So it, it does not surprise. That Millie pushed back against that, um, and and that he did so mainly in private, and that in public he did not make a big show of of pushing back against it. I think he was trying to adhere, in that sense, to accepted civil military norms. You know, appearing in public in in that uniform, I, I go back and I mean I think it was a terrible idea. I think it was terrible optics. It supported the line from the president that sort of this was a military problem to solve and he was putting the military in charge of it which i think is really really an inappropriate message it's not a military problem that you have thousands of people protesting and a tiny handful of them engaging in destruction of property that's not a military problem to solve on the other hand milly is not usually walking around in his dress uniform his his everyday workday uniform is that one and Mm -hmm. so you know if it if it's true that he and Esper were coming over from the pentagon to do something else and they were kind of sidetracked by the president that would make sense i still think you know if if i were millie i would still have asked if i could you know stay in the background or, or maybe not be put in that position i think it was bad optics i don't think i don't think that in and of itself is a crisis this refusal to go before congress though that is a big deal it is in line obviously with the way this administration has related to Congress the whole time, in that they have constantly asserted that they don't have to answer to Congress. They've constantly asserted that that everything is under executive privilege. They've constantly refused to turn over documents or testify. So it, it's consistent with the way this administration has viewed Congress, but you know, it it is to me, very disturbing because, uh, as you are very, very starkly aware, because this is your area of of real expertise, the the military is also under the control and oversight of Congress. Again, the constitution simply makes the the president the commander in chief of the military. It gives Congress the right to uh, control the military in, in all kinds of other ways. And again, originally, the power to call up the military at all rested with Congress, not with the president and so the the idea that that a military commander would refuse to go before Congress when called i think is is um, very disturbing, and I think it says a lot about how much Millie feels like he is between a rock and a hard place. I don't approve of his decision about how to handle being in that position though
1: yeah i mean i I'm not surprised Esper is not going to appear before Congress because we've had other cabinet secretaries refuse to do so. Uh, I don't expect Bob Barr to show up in front of Congress anytime too soon to explain, you know, the, the, who these people are now that are guarding American Sites in Washington D.C. that aren't don't have badges or have the badges are covered up and all the rest of it. But what's different is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is is you know his job is one in which it's not just that he was confirmed for that position; it's that every every promotion from the time he was a colonel upwards required consent of Congress. He's answerable to Congress. Yes, Uh, that's probably not going to happen in the Senate because the Senate Armed Services Committee is controlled by Senator Inhofe. Senator Inhofe is probably one of the more Trumpiest of of the Republicans. Is an (laughs) unlikely to challenge. Uh, Trump on anything. So if there's going to be hearings, they're going to have to be done in the House and the House Armed Services uh, Committee's uh, chairman, Adam Smith of all names, has been pushing to have Esper and Milley testify. And Milley's job is to say, salute and say, yes, sir. It's not supposed to be optional for him. Right. You know, so the fact that he's denying or at least thus far refusing to appear is really problematic. I mean, the people who do civil military relations, you know, would occasionally throw, you know, raise a card going, here, we have a civil relations crisis. We have a crisis in civilian control of the military. And those things we used to complain about are kind of meaningless or, or you know, very small potatoes compared to what's going on now. Now it's like, OK, we have lots of different civ mill cards, uh, crisis cards that we're, we could be thrown out right now. We have Millie refusing to testify in front of Congress. We have helicopters that are being used uh, in ways that are unacceptable and dangerous in the in the Capitol. Now we don't really know who ordered those helicopters to do what they were supposed to be doing. Everybody's trying to escape responsibility from all this. I mean, I've, I've lost track of how many, you know, civil crises we have. We, you know, this is a president who has already pardoned war criminals and Done all kinds of other things. People forget that in his first month, Donald Trump, when he there was a raid that failed in Yemen, said, Don't blame me, blame my generals. Yeah. So responsibility is not something that's been taken very seriously. And it's really, really problematic to see the chairman not fulfilling his constitutional responsibilities at this moment in time. Yeah. So I guess the the question I have for you is is if you could change anything or if you could whisper into either Joe Biden's ear or uh, if, if he is the next president of the United States, or into the ears of those uh, serving on armed services oversight committees in Congress, what would be the things that you would advise them to change or, or uh, to fix what's going on? Oh, my God, Steve. Hey, I'm giving you the power. <laughs> you know, rarely do we academics have that power. I'm going to hand over that power to you right now. Just one thing. Re- repeal the Insurrection Act. Repeal the things that were passed in the, the fever of the so- American Civil War.
2: No, I, I, I mean, there, there are reasons that those things are there. So here's the thing, like, I agree with you that we are in uh, a crisis. We're in a crisis of, of a number of American institutions. And I think the reason we're in a crisis is, is precisely because so many things are happening at once. You know, Any one of these things, and I would not think it was a crisis, but but all of them together are a crisis, and that's kind of why I'm struggling with this question. I don't think there's any one thing. I can't think of one thing that would help. It would need to be a whole bunch of things. And I'll say, like, I don't think that that law, like the Insurrection Act, etc., is in itself the problem. I mean, again, keep in mind that it, it's it's a huge combination of Congress delegating power, the Supreme Court. Deferring to the executive, you know, most Supreme Court rulings have basically granted the, exec- the executive significant discretion on a lot of things. And a president who does not feel restrained by any of the norms and principles of American political tradition, there's nothing that I can think of that, that any one actor could do to fix all of that. This is this is a problem of democratic institutions, and that's yeah. a problem that starts uh, at the level of, I mean, I, I think you would need both top-down and bottom-up change. Uh-huh. I don't think this can be solved by top-down change alone, but it, it can't be solved by bottom-up change alone either. I think you need a, a really, really significant change both in leadership and in how how the public understands its own role. So I guess in that sense, if I had to say one thing about leadership, it would be that we need someone who will reestablish or work to reestablish the norms that have been weakened or undermined or destroyed in the last several years. Um, We need someone who will say to people that, you know, these are the problems, and I will work with people to fix them, uh, and, and I will respect how democratic governance is supposed to work, but, but that by itself isn't going, to, isn't going to fix much.
1: Okay, well, I guess the, the last question I want to ask you is, what aren't people asking you that they should be asking you or asking themselves?
2: It, it's not so much what I wish they were asking me as what I wish the conversation were about. I wish the conversation were more about what the role of of a government in society is, because I think that's where we have a lot of disagreement, fundamental disagreement and breakdown. And I would want people to talk about, you know, the, the things that a government should be spending money on, like education and infrastructure, You know, there was a great, now I'm going to forget who said it, and I I feel terrible because I want to give attribution, but I saw a really great point made the other day that we have turned almost every social problem into something that we respond to with criminalization. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we spend enormous amounts of money on policing and police for things that we could fix by spending, by simply by spending that money on other things, probably less money on other things. And so I wish that were what the conversation was about it. How do we solve these problems yeah. instead of, of, of just criminalizing them and suppressing them and trying to uh, intimidate them out of existence? I don't think that works.
1: So really what you're saying is you're in favor of defunding the police.
2: I think that's a complicated issue. (laughs) No, I'm serious. Look, so attempts, various attempts at police reform have failed because the cultural and political context does not support them, right? Mm -hmm. We know what policies help, but if you still have a racist public, if you still have racist politicians, if you still have a racist political and economic structure, if you still Uh have racist police, then it doesn't matter how many policies you change. And it doesn't matter, you know, Uh all of the little steps you take again, like anything simplistic, like defund the police. I would want to know what the details are. Uh I think that I do think that we, we need a whole different model of policing. Yes.
1: Well, the, Um, Uh, The reason why I raised that was mostly because I think you articulated quite well what defunding the police really means in practice. It's not about zeroing out the police departments. It's about reducing their responsibilities and allocating the funds for those responsibilities elsewhere. So rather than sending the police on mental health wellness checks, you send a mental health person to do that. Mental health person is less likely to kill them and more likely to get them to you know in a better in a better place a better space than a police officer was and that means that you don't need as many police officers if they're doing a lot of the stuff right that yes. the statistics suggest that the violent criminals are, are 5% of what police officers deal with and over, over the course of time as we've had these various ideologies play out we've reduced the social services and increased money going to police to cover to cover those things. And that really hasn't worked out particularly well in some major ways. And so I was teasing you about defunding the police, but I think that your argument was really about what the, that particular slogan is about, which is reallocating responsibility and funding to people who are perhaps better at these things and and making it a lot less about policing. But that's a conversation for another day that we're all going to have. I I do agree with you that, you know, the problem is not just the legal and structural things. There's also the cultural things, the racism in our society we're not going to get at. But I I tend to focus on institutional ones because of how I was trained in grad school. And I also think that we can make some of these institutions work better even in the presence of racism and maybe by changing the institutions will reduce the ability for racists to thrive. But this is obviously a much longer process and conversation than we can have today. I really do appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. The Naval War College is a very valuable partner of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. And Lindsay has volunteered her services for various other things that we're doing in the Summer Training Institute that we were supposed to have this summer. So it's always a pleasure to talk to you and uh, I wish you luck in managing this quarantine and we'll have you back hopefully when we've solved this racism thing.
2: Oh, well, hopefully before then. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Steve.
1: It's always a pleasure to chat with you. On this week's RNR segment, I want to talk about one movie, one book, and one TV show. Two of which address issues of today, one which is completely different, but we need some distraction. So, the distraction would be Little Monsters. It's an Australian based zombie movie about a teacher uh, and her class that are at a zoo ish kind of place that is overrun by zombies and how she and her allies fight the zombies. It's ridiculous, it's funny. Uh, and it's well done, and it stars Lapita Nongo and she does a great job with it. I, I'm a big fan now of, of Australian zombie movies. They're always just a little off in a in a, in a fun way. But given the events of the past couple weeks in the United States, I thought for reading, I'd recommend a book that, that I read when I was in high school, uh, The Autobiography of Malcolm X, that shows the evolution of Malcolm X's thinking uh, about race relations in the United States and what to do about it. Uh, He was a pivotal figure of that era. He was a very controversial figure of that era, as he was often engaged in uh, arguments and rivalry with Martin Luther King Jr. And we often think idealize Martin Luther King Jr. And we forget uh, that the civil rights movement was more than one individual, and that there were competing visions of it. And in fact, one might want to suggest actually a movie, Black Panther, if you watch Black Panther, the debate about what Wakanda should do in the world is not that dissimilar from the debate between Malcolm X, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and others about the use of violence, about whether one should carve out a separate world or how to engage the world, given how racist the world was and is. So maybe that should have been the movie recommendation. Anyway, so Malcolm X is the book, the autobiography, and the TV show uh, I'm recommending this week is The Wire. The Wire is a an important depiction, not just of race relations in the United States, but the decline of the American city. Uh, it is about Baltimore, but it's not just about Baltimore. And over the course of the five years, it addresses not just the drug war and the rivalry between, between drug gangs and between the drug gangs and the, and the police, but it also shows the corruption within the police department and uh, the tendencies within the police department to make the wrong decisions. But it also looks at the media, the schools, the docks. uh, That is where the the important part of the businesses of of Baltimore. And it's a fantastic TV show. It's actually much funnier than one would expect, but it also addresses really important uh, questions about uh, race relations and city politics and uh, the state of America. And while it was made 20, almost 20 years ago now, it's still very, very valid today, as we've seen the past couple of weeks in the United States, uh, that these, these problems are enduring. And a lot of it, it has to do with the institutionalization of racism. I think The Wire depicts it really well. So those are my recommendations for this week. Uh, be safe, wash your hands, wear your masks and get outside. Uh, good luck with everything. And we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Thank you. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.